Welcome to episode five of Regulatory Ramblings. Our guest today is a dear friend and mentor of mine. Nigel Morris Cultural is a counter money laundering and financial crime risk and compliance strategist. A pioneer in the field of financial crime risk and compliance strategies. It's an area in which he's worked for close to three decades. Prior to that, he was a solicitor in private practice, having authored several books, financial crime and other topics. He's also a regular contributor to several media outlets. Nigel is also the chairman of the Financial Crime Forum and a developer of high-level online training programs. Often, often unconventional and uh, sometimes a little controversial, he aids businesses smooth out the bumps in their risk and compliance systems so as to increase efficiency and reduce costs and staff resistance to frequent change. And with that, Nigel, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Likewise. You, you and I have had, you know, multiple chats over the years um, about the topic of AML. At a, at a broad strokes level, I mean, I think you know my reservations about people without a legal background or without bringing themselves up to speed in the mainstream press, particularly business journalists, writing about the law. But what do most journalists, do you think, get wrong when they write about money laundering and, and, and financial crime? I mean, because there's, there, there's, there's some good content out there, some, some not so much. Why are they so glib, I, I guess? Is... Well, they, they have the wrong starting point. They start talking about AML. Um, and it's not AML, it's counter money laundering. Because whatever we're doing in the financial sector, it's always reactive. We're never ahead of the criminals. When we're talking about um, uh, the funding of future crime, be it terrorist or anything else, that can be anti. But strangely, we call that counter. Yeah. So, it, so we've got the terminology back to front. So the, the, the annoying thing about this is that in the 1980s and the early 1990s, we had the technology right. It was counter money laundering. And I don't know how it came about that somebody somewhere changed it and got it wrong. And because we're talking, because people are talking about anti-money laundering, they cannot get the very, very simple basics right, which is that we have to identify who the people we're dealing with are and what those people are doing or what they might have already done. So we're, we're always looking at history. Whereas if it was anti, we'd be trying to look into a crystal ball. So that's the, that's the biggest mistake that people make. They fundamentally misunderstand the starting point. And from that, so much error flows. This is an area, but, but we are talking about financial crime. So it is given to sensational headlines. Some years ago, Hong Kong passed its anti-money laundering ordinance, which is meant to consolidate the different bits and pieces of legislation in this area around the territory. Um, they, the HKMA, the banking regulator, the SFC, the, the markets regulator, then passed their own guidelines for AMLO, as we call it. One local journalist who shall remain nameless seized upon the juiciest tidbits the most salacious aspects, the, the, the most sensationalistic aspects, and ran with that. The trouble is when you take 
certain components and you don't mention the whole of a set of guidelines or a statute um, or an ordinance that, that again, it's, it's, it's out of context. The regulators contacted me about that. Is, is, the, is the sensational nature of the cases involving money laundering part of why they, they, they go for it, that they, they sell the sizzle rather than the steak? Because the details are important, but th those tend to, oftentimes for me, they, they bury the lead because they don't push the details further enough, further up enough, so that you can see, you know, what what exactly uh, the nature of the malfeasance was, as opposed to, you know, crypto exchange go bust, launderers steal X, Y, and Z. You know, the the quantum of the, the of the uh, of the crime matters more than the mechanics of the crime. Yes, but that's because you and I are interested in, in how it happens, and how, how to, if not prevent it, how to control it, how to deal with it, with the fallout from it. That's not what journalists are looking to do. Journalists, by definition, are looking to sell newspapers or whatever, and they need headlines. And if man bites dog sells newspapers, that's what they're going to put. It's also been pointed out to me that uh, this is something that this has been my sense based on all the courses I've taken and what I read and people like yourself that I've spoken to that, that a country can score high on overall compliance but compliance measures by you know based on a national assessment of the FATF 40 recommendations have nothing to do really with the level of illicit funds sloshing around in your economy. Why, why the dichotomy? Why the disconnect? Because governments like to say they're doing things, but they don't like to do it. It costs money. Because they have to fund things, because they have to be organised, they don't want to do it. If we look back, if we go back to 1999, 1998-99, um, and we look at the USA and the arguments over the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, part of which was to require suspicion-based reporting or the broadening of suspicion-based reporting. And the ACLU, I can't remember what that acronym stands for, which is one of the reasons I hate acronyms. Um, the something Civil Liberties Union, isn't it? Um, they and a disparate group of what were generally described as the Black Helicopter Brigade made very forcible representations that it was not in the interests of the, of, of the citizenry for this to be brought into play. And you'll remember at this time, the, the USA had already managed to avoid criticism from the FATF for failing to have effective um, know your customer information. Um, and it had many sectors, including, for example, securities, which were completely outside the suspicious transaction reporting systems. So in fact, it wasn't just in the US in, in the USA. Patrick Mules, who was the chairman of the Financial Action Task Force at the time, um, I was talking to him in Paris while he was still in post. And he said, we have a problem. We are getting death threats from people in the USA who don't want these the, the KYC provisions to, to be put into the act. Now, if we fast forward until literally yesterday, a... Um, a broadcast by the Financial Action Task Force about its um, ultimate beneficial owner 
uh, recommendations or the revisions of those recommendations. Um, it said something along the lines of um, having an effective UBO register is is very complex um, and when we're not, it's going to be very hard to do. Actually, no, it's not. It's incredibly simple. It's really, really simple. It's big, but big does not necessarily mean complex. But what we have here is, I suspect, can't prove it, haven't, haven't asked anybody, only had, it's only, it only happened last night. Um, I suspect that what is happening here is the USA is once more afraid that the Black Helicopter Brigade and the the ACLU and other organizations like it, particularly bearing in mind that we have a, um, a, a, a well, not we, but America has um, a, a democratic government and therefore doesn't want to upset um, quite a lot of these um, social groups. My suspicion is that it's being said if we're going to have a national register of owners of companies, that's going to impinge too much on people's privacy. So it's not complicated, it's political. And, and they need to be honest about this. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's really what's going on behind it. But if you look at what's available in most states, they already have most of this information. If you look at the, at, at the revenue, the IRS in the USA, it already has this information. So it's actually a completely pointless argument to say we should not be collecting this. And in fact, it only needs one or two extra boxes on a, on a company tax return in the USA for the information which they're now setting up a completely discrete system to run through FinCEN. That information could be available with just a couple of extra boxes on an IRS form. No need for a separate system from FinCEN at all. Yes, FinCEN would need to have the authority to interrogate the IRS database, but given that FinCEN is actually part of the, um, of the Treasury, that shouldn't be difficult. It's, it's worth noting that the U.S. did not fare that well in uh, its uh, own national assessment several years ago. They found uh, multiple areas of weakness and jurisdiction. I mean, pe people talk about money laundering in other parts of the world. I mean, places like Delaware and Nevada were, were uh, spotlighted for uh, being, being rather... I've been, I've been highlighting those since the mid-1990s. Um, and uh, two Dakotas, North Dakota in particular. Um, but also, I think what, what's important to, to look at, if you're going to take that argument, is that the USA is at the forefront of bullying small nations, whilst failing or refusing, I would say refusing, to, um, go to, to, to implement the appropriate requirements. We have to also understand the USA is a country, but it is also 50-odd states which are independent jurisdictions and not every jurisdiction has laws which are consistent with federal laws similarly if crime takes place within a single state and that proceeds is laundered within that state which it can be within the u.s financial system then it is enforceable only within that state so federal law can't touch it the only way it gets to that is if they can demonstrate that in some way, either a communication relating to that money or the money itself crossed the border. Then they can bring in wire fraud and or money laundering at a federal level. And then they can take the whole 
up yeah. to federal up to the federal yeah. case. It, it, it's, um, I mean, we, we see shades of that with, with the whole debate several years back over FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, and people point out, you know, this is kind of, it's not just about taxes, it's, it's about AML too. I mean, the, view, the claim was, you know, foreigners will be able to, you know, get access to the details of, you know, foreign governments will be able to get access to the details of funds that their nationals have secreted in the U.S. and, and, and vice versa. But when it, 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 the flow of information is really just one way because when foreign governments have tried to obtain information about their nationals, most notably mainland China, uh, you know, they've been, they've, people have been able to hide behind a wall of state law protections. Uh, you know, because banking law is, is to a great extent done at the state level. And, uh, you know, so again, it, 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 the two-way flow of information, the, the two-way sense of uh, transparency that, that, the, that there was claimed to sell that, that legislation just um, did, did not materialize. It's very, very much in the favor of the U.S., the U.S. was not the first country to try this. Um, in 1996, I think it was, um, Sweden passed a law that um, uh, that, that all its citizens were um, basically agreed to the interrogation of overseas financial institutions as to whether or not it was holding money for, for Swedish nationals. And this was because Sweden has a wealth tax. Not many countries do. Um, and I know that there is, among certain elements of the left, a demand that the world should move to wealth tax, but um, Sweden actually has it. And the idea was that um, if anyone was holding money offshore that was accumulate that was that was growing, then the state should take a share of that. Um, not many countries follow that, but they do take take the approach that if there is income, then that income must be declared no matter where it arises. Um, other countries take the view that if your income grows offshore, you're entitled to, entitled to let it do that. But if you bring it back onshore, then you have to pay tax on it. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of, even that's more complicated than it seems, because, for example, Malaysia doesn't charge tax on dividends, no matter where those dividends arise. So you can have shareholdings in any country around the world. And. You, are, you will be liable to tax on selling those shares, probably, um, but on the income that arises from them, you are not liable as income tax. So because there is no homogenized version of, of tax, it becomes incredibly difficult for anyone to really understand what we're supposed to be trying to identify. Um, the Australians, the Americans, the Germans, they want every penny of your money worldwide accounted for or there's dire consequences. The UK doesn't take anything like the same um, approach in relation to tax, um, although it is being pushed in that direction by various factions of the left. Oh, it's worth noting during the debate over FATCA, they had floated something that was basically called the British equivalent of FATCA to certain journalists. And um, yeah, I mean, it. it, it 
it really would have wrecked havoc for the foreign dependent overseas territories who, you know, that, that's their bread and butter. Well, I think, I think it's important to understand. I mean, there's, there's, there's current vogue again, again and again to attack the overseas territories as if they're doing something wrong. What we have to understand, as I, I wrote back in the 1990s, the territories around the world, which are not only British overseas territories, that have very low or zero income tax, still have a tax regime. It's just not that tax. It's just not that tax. Sure. So they have high duties. I mean, if you go into the Cayman Islands, the duty on the duty on everything going to the Cayman Islands is, is immense. Whereas in other countries, it's it's relatively small. So it's not that these are are low tax environments. Contrary to the the views that are frequently ex expressed is that they are differently taxed environments. And one of the reasons they are differently taxed is for the simple reason that they have no or very little locally produced wealth, that everything has to be imported. And financial services has been a way of creating, of, of creating an exportable product. And we know from the whole world that exports are incredibly important to every economy. If you take away financial financial services from these island economies and, and other enclaves around the world, what are they going to do? They can't grow bananas. They can't all rely on tourism. I mean, half of them don't have enough land mass to, to do one or other of those to an effective um, amount. But what they can do is stick a computer in the corner of the office and make money from financial services. And they can do that with the indigenous people by training them so they have a workforce, the, the whole of the, the local society benefits from it. And provided the, the people that are using those services are honest, that's where the problem arises. There is no difficulty with that. And I think most people in the UK have failed to understand, for example, that because of the way the tax regime works between the offshore industry and um, and the UK tax, their pensions have accelerated far greater. The amount in their pension pot is much more than it would have been had it all been kept on shore because of the way the tax really works. So all the people that are, have been benefiting from this ever since they started paying money into their tax, into their pension schemes. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, this is when Cameron was still prime minister, but I mean, it was interesting seeing him browbeat the Europeans, I mean, amidst the back, you know, the backdrop of the Panama Papers at the time. And, you know, there were a lot of smug people in, uh, in London, in New York, saying, oh, well, those Latin Americans, those Panamanians, they're, they're, they're just corrupt. I mean, fixating on a firm like uh, Mossack Fonseca, when we know there's, you know, the group called the Overseas, White Shoe, uh, Magic Circle firms, Bedell & Co, Applebee's and, and the rest, that do much the same. Well, I think the, the, the problem with Mossack Fonseca was that it was too anxious to promote its dodgy services. They were very aggressive. I have a letter from them telling me how little it's going to cost me to have an offshore bank in any name I choose. Um, it's, um, <laughs> they, um, they also had a, a sizable advert in the back pages in the back page of the economist for for years um and it was essentially something it didn't actually say we will we will help you 
um, avoid tax, but that was the implication. So there are these things, but I mean, even today, you can go online and you can find companies that are advertising, we will sell you tax efficient structures for X amount of money, and we will do it so that, you, so that your identity is completely protected. Now, this is where the argument about ultimate beneficial owners, the owners of trusts and the like, has validity and it's always had validity this is not this week or this year this has been right back to 19 1990s the problem however is not necessarily the jurisdictions it's not necessarily the structure of the jurisdictions financial thing what they're saying is what 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 the FATF and others are saying is we cannot control you and, and how people use your, your services. Therefore, we're going to make it so you can't offer those services. Um, which is a, you know, it, it's, it's what they should be doing is saying, these, uh, there's nothing wrong with these services. The problem is that you are not taking steps to prevent them being used by criminals. And tax evaders are criminals. You know, let's, let's be clear about it. it was, we, we should stop making, giving the idea that tax evasion is in some way a, um, a high moral perspective. If you're evading tax, you're a criminal. Go to jail. Simple. Um, it's, no, it's no different to, I don't know, robbing a bank or whatever. You are stealing from the state by, by evading tax. So we should be making it clear that, it's, it's, that they should be more cautious about who they're dealing with and perhaps they should be looking at having onshore kyc processes so for example there could be a company in new york that that, that does all the kyc for 10 or 20 financial institutions or company formation agents or whatever in the cayman islands and they could club together to create that organization and and make sure that it can do that effectively in relation to American citizens trying to do business in Cayman. It's not hard, but it's just it requires some unconventional thinking, which most people are not willing to do. If we look at the Deutsche Bank case, um, which one? I mean, loads. Um, look at the Deutsche Bank case relating to um, the guy and the women. What's his name? Uh, Epstein. If you have a look at, at how that was structured around the Caribbean, you'll see that it was very carefully put together by people who were looking to make it difficult to follow the money trail or the information trail. I, we're no longer looking at money. Money's, money doesn't exist, apart from when you do happen to have some notes in your pocket. Really, we're talking about data. And so the obfuscation of the data trail is, is the objective of the criminals these days, more than trying to hide the money itself. And that data trail got unraveled. And over a period of 10 years or so, it was very clear that there was a, 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 a system which had been created specifically to provide these services. A lot of that system was in New York. But New York did not prosecute the individuals involved in that system. Why? They were facilitating the laundering of, of, of tax of, of tax evaded money. Why were they not prosecuted? Does it matter that they were working for accountancy firms or banks or law firms? No. Go after the individuals. You start banging people up, other people take notice. 
And the difficulty we have is that there is a lack of willingness to go after the individuals who are putting these things together under the umbrella of a company. And it's impossible in most jurisdictions to prosecute in criminal law a company. So the company gets a civil fine, a bit of a slap on the wrist. It might negotiate um, some kind of, of, um, of settlement of a minor criminal charge, like not having adequate systems in place. But at the end of the day, you can't jail a company, but you can jail people. And until such time as the people are held responsible, rather than saying it's the fault of the company, we're not going to see any improvement. And if we saw that improvement, then the problems that are uh, that, that come out of the Caribbean would automatically get resolved without having to kill the economies of the Caribbean states.